0: well friends uh, sinners have a jar often the jar is filled by the sin but once the jar becomes full it, it becomes over see every time sinners rebel against god by openly transgressing the revealed will they fill up the jar and they think some more filling wouldn't make difference but when the jar is full like in our text God judges the nation. That is not just for individuals, but entire nations. The iniquity of Israel as the people of God and as a nation in our text tonight reach their full. And that's where God unleashes His ultimate judgment. That's what we see tonight in the final episode of our journey through the major prophets. And I want to end with this passage of 2 Chronicles Uh, As we end this year, meditation on the major prophets. Lord willing, next year we'll start to look at some of the brighter light of restoration after judgment. Uh, Particularly some prayers of revivals that we find in scripture. This is the last chapter of Israel's kinship. We find here an exact parallel, by the way, in 2 Kings 24, all the way to 25, verse 30. And both of these passages are describing the greater... Uh, Details of removing Judah from God's presence, the southern tribes of Israel. The northern tribes by this time had gone into exile. However, the sins of the king Manasseh had led God to a final decision to not withhold the judgment. The unwillingness of God to forgive despite the repentance of few kings, Josiah and few others, then leads to the siege of Jerusalem, which indeed is something dreadful. It's uh, the famine within the walls, the breaking of the walls. And despite uh, the king tries to escape through a secret passage, the king at the time, which is mentioned in the text, is Zedekiah. He is then captured, brought the chain to Babylon together with all the Israelites. The children of this king are slaughtered right before his eyes. The generals of the kingdom that had rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. And that... It's what follows the removal also of his own two eyes. I mean, this is a tragic end for the kingdom of Israel. That the final rebellion needed to be quenched, but also a final, hopeful, as we look at the end of our text, reference that, Lord willing, as we'll pick up next year. There is a restoration after all this judgment. Uh, Revival comes after judgment. Judah's king is taking off uh, the prisoner's clothes. That's what is described at the end of our text finds favor in Babylon's court, and uh, that opens then the book of Ezra, which, by the way, Lord willing, next year will begin with that uh, passage selected from that book. So while the book of Kings has a longer description of the fall of Jerusalem, I chose 2 Chronicles because it adds the very important theological reflection upon the event. It's not just describing to you what happened at the destruction of Jerusalem. Chronicles is one of the most neglected books, obviously, has those initial genealogies. If you venture in your Bible studies, people can think you know, it's a very boring book. But I want to say, actually, I find the book of Chronicles very encouraging. Because it focuses on the fruit of obedience, and also the tragedy of disobedience in, in the impact of the history of Israel, on curses, judgment, unleashed, all because, as we saw last time, the worship was defiled. And remember, Chronicles also, unlike our Bibles, is placed in the Jewish Old Testament at the end. It looks backward, after the exile, on the heritage of Israel. And it's trying to reconstruct the history. It is intended to encourage Jewish people, future generation, how are we to move forward after the shattering of our identity, through experiencing the exile in the skin of judgment. I mean, the entire generation goes to, do, to, to Babylon and they die there 70 years. Israel needed after that an orientation at the time of Daniel to build back what was lost, to view the past in light of the bright future of the hope of restoration. As the book of Chronicles is far more focused on the southern kingdom, the kingdom of David, of Judas, and it's also a religious commentary. It's not just giving you historical themes but as a religious purpose, a theological purpose, it focuses on the temple, this theme of the temple and the glory of God, and ultimately the destruction as we see in this text of all that glory. So it's written by Israelites who are in exile, and they want to come back to Jerusalem. And we come here to Judah's final bad kings, Jehoahaz, all the way to Zedekiah, what is the Babylonian exile, and the hint to the final return. In verse 1 to 4, we already see some context to the surrounding of this fall of Jerusalem. Josiah was the last good king who had died in previous chapter. He had sought to do some reformation. Jeremiah had lamented his death. However, after Josiah, here we have a successive line of bad kings that are one worse than the other. God has by this point abandoned the nation completely. Many of the kingdoms only last few months. I mean, it's a very unstable situation for the kingdom of Judah. There are puppet kings that are placed by foreign invaders on top of the land. And from this we must notice, therefore, our things were not going well for Israel, even prior to the exile. It's not just the exile, it's just the the culmination of all things in Babylon. Politically, they were at this time already slaves, not back to Egypt, See, God had promised Israel that you shall not take that road never again. But however, their corporate unrepented sin brought them back to slavery. And only this time is not uh, toward Egypt, but it's toward Babylon. And so, what do we see here in this final chapter that concludes our meditation on the major prophet? That you see, after an endless cycle of apostasy that we commented upon in weeks ago Jerusalem and the temple finally must be destroyed this friends is the magnitude of the tragedy of the desolation that is caused by unrepentance the collapse of our civilization this is not a minor thing let us start with uh, first uh, fi- verse 5 to 14 what was be- happening just before the destruction there was already a decline in Jerusalem and there in your outlines there's the city's decline which then leads the first waves of deportation by the king of Babylon. Here you have the last bad kings recorded who reigned in Jerusalem, Jehoiakim. He's 25 years old, he's very young, he's very mature, and it's a briefer kingdom if compared to other kingdoms. And the text says, he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Morally, he did what was disagreeable and displeasing to God by sinning against God. Point being, he was no good king. His reign, according to God's opinion, not all the servants he had around him that were flattering, according to God's opinion, went down in history as a very bad one. And this is the sad refrain of many of Israel's king, if you read through the history of Israel, that they did according to everything that their ancestors did, rejecting the Lord. But you see, this time, verse 6 and 7, tells us that the time is running out that the patience of God is running short. Nebuchadnezzar comes. Babylon sends these first waves of exile all the way to Jerusalem, all the way to the city gates. It takes the king of Israel to Babylon in bronze fetters, our text says. It takes items from the desecrated house of the Lord in Jerusalem to Babylon. It places the item of worship in the pagan temples that we find them all the way to Daniel. And verse 8 tells that the reason is obviously because of what we saw last time, the abominations that Jehoiakim and even the religious priests were doing. Verse 9 and 10, now he dies, his son takes his place, he's too young, he lasts only three months, no difference in terms of evilness. So now Nebuchadnezzar, or I would say God through Nebuchadnezzar, sends the second wave of exile. And this time takes more, even more things from the temple. And he makes Zedekiah a puppet king in Jerusalem. Until we finally get to the final destruction, which is verse 11 to 14. Verse 11, Zedekiah, you see, that name is supposed to mean Yahweh is righteous. But Zedekiah, this king, doesn't show any righteousness. That you, If you read Jeremiah, I mean, he, he was really a bad king. And verse 12 tells not only that he did evil, but he did evil in the sight of the God by the fact that he did not humble himself. He did not humble toward God like elsewhere in the Old Testament. Humbling is not just feeling sorry, or, but the concrete action to stop sinning and beginning to do what is right. That's what's behind the humbling of himself that is not happening. The pride, the total blindness that the king displays here by not humbling himself, means that despite his claim to God, he has no true reverence, no heeding to the warning of the prophets, no true contrition, low, no low status in relationship to God, but he's only proud. He pretend to deserve God's favor, no matter what he does. And if he refute also to take the counsel of Texas by the prophet. And the prophets, obviously, we saw the refrain. They kept calling the people to turn back once again. So he was not ashamed at God's word through Jeremiah, says, who preached God's word to him? From the mouth of the Lord. From the mouth of the Lord, friends. Remember, the prophet spoke through Yahweh. You see, just like verbal, physical abuse in the workplace is not a matter of personal disagreement. It is a disregard against the entire company. If you disregard the warnings of judgment from the Bible, you're not disregarding men. You are disregarding God. See, these were not Jeremiah's messages. They were messages from the Lord himself. And the way that the king reacted showed what he thought of the Lord. Verse 13, Zedekiah also presumed to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. He stiffened his neck, he hardens his heart. And instead of turning to the Lord and repenting, in verse 14, the inexcusable sin that we saw last time in Ezekiel. All the leaders of the priests. See, they're mentioned first because their sin is all the more inexcusable. They were the ringleaders in leading the people and the people to idolatry. Remember last time? It's like an evil, deceitful mindset that spread it from the leadership and it filtered down everywhere among the Jewish society that simply drank iniquity from their leaders. This is what we could call a pandemic of evil right before God pulverizes everything they didn't realize how blind they were this is what preceded the ultimate destruction not only did they transgress they caused the people to transgress but they did so wickedly more and more are says. they were exceedingly unfaithful they added infidelity to infidelity they followed after the abomination of the nations the pagans and they polluted the, the house of the Lord which was consecrated by God, hallowed and sanctified, made holy, the temple in Jerusalem, by God. That was what we saw last time. The, the, the rotten in the level fruit that was ripe for judgment, sacrilege, in the house of God, which became desecrated through their sin. And judgment day, reckoning, finally came for their treacheries. Matthew Henry has this to say, That place is not far from ruin in which religion is already in ruin. In other words, the continuous rebellion of Israel's kings and priests reaches its highest right before the end. There's kind of a magnifying moment just before collapse comes. Have you ever read the book of Chronicles or the book of Kings all the way in one sitting? What is the refrain that you hear every time that, with few, few exceptions, you hear a king comes along? From the first to the last, almost all that the kings did evil in the sight of the Lord. what is it is by trusting in earthly power, their horses, idolatry, opulence, unjust judgment, shedding innocent blood, marrying pagan wives, stealing property, all will show that they completely neglected to put in practice the commandment of God, to uphold the law of God, and worst part about this, is the obstinate resolution not to return to God. It's like they were saying, we're just not going to go back to God, and thinking that there will be no consequence. That's the, This is tragedy, friends. You yeah, believe me. God will find, find a way or another to humble those who will not humble themselves. They will not prosper. No matter how skilled in treachery, God weakens and ultimately removes kings and nations that forsake God. Someone says, national injustice is the surest road to national downfall. In other words, now the prophets came and their role was to warn of the coming judgment if the kings and their subjects will not listen by repenting. And the sad aspect here, friends, is that the religious priests, the political leaders, everyone else not only refused to heed the warnings of God's word, but they became even bolder in their sin. And after the prophets came to expose their sin, The pagan idolatry we saw last time, right inside the temple, defiled, the place that was supposed to be holy. They forsook the pure worship of God for filthy pagan superstition. And so what was Israel supposed to do at this point in the history, in the redemptive history of Israel? See, priests are corrupt, malevolent, they cannot help. Kings, even if they were tall like we saw with Saul, strong, handsome, they became selfish. They disobeyed God and persecuted the prophet. Brian Chappell has this to say, the Hebrew mindset rotates around the thing to show you what's missing by not explaining straightforward, unlike with what we do here in the West. In other words, all these failures were screaming at you that we needed a better king, we needed a better priest, we needed a perfect prophet, that all of these things in Israel history were pointing to a reality forward that there is a better prophet, priest, and king that has finally come for us, Jesus Christ, who has taken our judgment. He has obeyed where we disobeyed. That's how our holy only hope to avert the judgment that hangs on every soul, friends, that keeps on singing. And if he keeps on sinning after the knowledge of the truth, I mean, there is no hope but for the surest final judgment, which is symbolized by our text to the final destruction of Jerusalem. Let's look at that. Verse 15 to 21, the city finally is destroyed. They ignore the warnings of God over and over again. Despite their stubborn rejection and unwillingness to repent the Lord God of their fathers, they they were reaping, yes, the remains of God's blessings from previous generations, but it came that those blessings finally ran out. And God kept sending, look at that text, verse 15 and 16, warning for them by His messengers, the prophets. He raised up early, When you're still in bed, we could say, which means they have no excuse. God warned them from the beginning for the first king of of Israel all the way to this hour, persistently, again and again. Why? Why was God not finishing up everything immediately (laughs) as they sinned? Because of his compassion toward his people and his dwelling place. See, the God prior to finally unleashing the due payment for sin, It's almost as if he's torn between his compassion and the need of justice. There's a passage in Hosea 11, verse 8, that puts it this way. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. Friends, God doesn't delight in destroying. God doesn't delight in judging. Yet, they gave him no other choice. That was the problem of Israel. Because how is God's people responding to this show of kindness, compassion, and I want to say forbearance. The way that God kept bearing with their sin. No, our text in total disregard says, they mocked their messengers. Which means as God sends prophets simultaneously to that action from God, this is what God was doing for them. He sends them prophets to bring them back to Him. That's what they did to the messengers of God. They continually mocked the messengers. They continually ridiculed or poked fun at the messengers of God. They treated them like idiots. They despised them. They jeered, laughed at, or ignored God's Word. Obviously, they claim on the surface to love God's Word. They love the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, and all that. You see, their behavior They were treating God's word with contempt. They were regarding the temple as bad, and they were scorning and undermining God, thinking lightly of it. No harm shall befall us, even if we continue to act in our stubbornness of our hearts and blindness, so they thought. And so they misused, our text says, scoffed the prophets. That word, scoffed, misused, is almost like acting deceitfully through personal attacks which is like verbal ridicule or playing cruel tricks with your word in order to trap someone, misleading someone, to make anger come out of the person being tricked. And that person right now is is prophets, Jeremiah. Didn't they realize that their treatment of the messengers was a direct indication of the true opinion of the message? Sadly, this is also, I want to say, the same treatment that Jesus Christ received. That ultimately this identifies you as a true servant of God. As the, he is the true ultimate prophet. He was despised and rejected. And here's the truth told in parable. God sends prophets after prophets to the vineyard. The vineyard was the image of Israel. But they beaded one. They sent away another. They treated shamefully another. They killed another until the owner finally sends his beloved son. They at least will respect my beloved son. When they see him come, they say, oh, this is the heir. Let us kill him and the property will be ours. They didn't realize his innocent death was going to save those who will believe and obey his message because they alone who repented and believe in the son will be spared the last judgment in hell what will the owner do to the so-called servants of the vineyard who only did evil to the true servants he will come he will kill them and give the vineyard to others more worthy that was ultimately God's indictment against these people our text continues God was so stirred up against his people in wrath his wrath full of his fury arose and look how it continues, until there was no remedy. Until there was no remedy. See, there's an until. There's an one time too much. There's an end to the forbearance and patience of God. There is an end to all this affront to God's true messengers. At last, they wouldn't list anymore. So there was no remedy, no healing, but complete destruction. No restoration back to the peaceful state possible at this point. For those who sinned to such base level it was over this had become an incurable condition it's like you go to a doctor and the doctor says I'm sorry I tried every possible treatment there's nothing left but to die no turning back God said to Israel enough is enough no more time of favor your sin could no longer be appeased no one can prevent the judgment now you could no longer be restrained There's no escape, friends. No exit way when it comes. No food to eat. No money to escape slavery. No way to even bring them back to the right track. Their sin was incurable. Nothing could be done but to, God had to annihilate Israel. The most tremendous judgment of God, John Owen says, in this world is the hardening of the hearts of men see, because of that hardening ultimately means your hope of restoration is over. It leads to your complete doom, verse 17 to 21. Finally, the Chaldeans came to Jerusalem. They encamped around the city through the walls. And now God fulfills His word in Leviticus 26, the Leviticus curses, verse 33. And I will scatter you among the nations. I will unshether the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, your cities shall be a waste. Notice it is God, the subject here. I will scatter you among the nations. God gave everyone and everything in the hands of these Ethan invaders. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a conspiracy theory. Here you have the description. It's tragic. Verse 18, young men killed in their homes, virgins, raped. Killed, elderly or weak, all the items from the temple and the treasures of the temple, the king's house, everything is brought to Babylon. And the house of God, verse 19, is burned to the ground. Imagine for a second how it would look like. That was the pride of Israel's religious commitment, you know. This is God's presence without, us. It's gone. Completely destroyed. The wall of Jerusalem broken down. All the palaces, the possessions burned. The sword carried everyone to Babylon in exile. Deported thousands of thousands of people. And they become slaves of tyrants. And verse 31. All of this is not a chance, friends. It's in fulfillment of the word of the Lord. The judgment, and particularly this text, of the breaking that God gave to Jeremiah. So that the land enjoyed its Sabbath that ultimately they had broken the Sabbath, that was the sign of the old covenant, and to pay for all the breaking of this command to rest, for all the previous generations, now 70 years the land will lay desolate. J.A. Packer says, the essence of God's action in wrath is to give people what they choose in all its implications. It's a dreadful thing, friends, that finally after the constant rejection of the prophets by Israel, there remain no other options but for Jerusalem and the temple to be completely destroyed. What, what has this nation done, friends, to God's word? Think about it. What is the church doing with God's word today? The warning and unpleasant truth that we explored in past weeks, yes, as we went through very strong texts, the, the reality is that the church is watering down those truths. The church, the church is ignoring the warnings, rejecting the word, how has the people treated true ministers of God? There's an abounding, and there will be an abounding in the future of ministers who are ostracized, persecuted, most of them for what? For telling the truth. For telling that a male is a male and a female is a female. What was actually a gift from the heart of God, think about it. God had compassion, He sends His prophet. It was intended to lead people to repenters. That was despised persistently by this temple goers. well people don't realize that there's a crossing the line in all this. God doesn't allow his name to be endlessly profaned by professing believers. It comes a time there is no more remedy. John judgment finally came. God is a God of justice. See he must punish unrepentant sin. He must punish unrepentant nations like ours. After all the warnings have been ignored from scripture the options are exhausted. We must remember today friends every great nations fall by suicide destruction doesn't come without it comes from within so it is today leaders you look at religious leaders political leaders they lead the society to downward destruction through immorality apostasy from god friends we're entering in a shadow darkness that only ends in defeat and shame and slavery and all sorts of unthinkable, unimagined. Can you imagine how it felt for an Israelite to lose your freedom? Then you lost your land, then you lose your wealth, and finally, after a complete siege, you lost your God. It's over. The temple and your very life, and their children who lose their entire identity, the loss of a history, the loss of an entire civilization, the loss of all the hope for future, Friends, it's not just idolatry and other major sins. What is interesting in this text is how rest mattered to God. I know that we will deal with this topic in Lord willing next year as we go through the Ten commandment. But rest mattered to God in the Old Covenant. For them it was the breaking of the Sabbath command, which was the sign of the Old Covenant. The fields needed to rest every seven years. That was the sign of the Old Covenant. And they didn't make the land rest. But why was the reason? Covetousness. They wanted to get more and more. And God makes that land now. Forces that land to rest. It was an entire society. Workaholic. Distracted by many things. Covetous. Seeking to gather more and more money. More and more houses. And they didn't care less about the heeding of the prophets' call to repent. And then what what happens? Once judgment comes, all of the house of cards just blows away. All the projects. All of the ideas. Everything. God comes down to judge. It's not worth a penny. If this was all then, then, I want to say there will be no hope. So let me introduce you to what, Lord willing, next year we will begin as we look at the journey through revival, which is possible only in light of the misery that precedes revival. And that is the restoration after judgment. And that's our third point. What is the destiny of this city? It's obviously destroyed now, but there's still a future destiny. Verse 22 and 23, the ending of our text. God will bring restoration after judgment. If this was, was everything, then it would, it would be hopeless for us. I mean, there, it would be judgment, however, still takes place. An entire generation still dies under judgment. However, there's a hopeful light at the end of this book. Then many years later, come another kingdom, the kingdom of Persia, after Babylon falls, kingdoms rise and fall. Persia and Cyrus, its king, again to fulfill the Jeremiah's prophecy of restoration. After the 70 years of exile, our text says, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. God moves the, puts into the mind or awakens, could be rendered, sets into motion, arouses Cyrus to alert, he motivates him to do something. Now, this Spirit's work is not necessarily pointing to any conversion. I mean, this is a pagan king. Cyrus It's more a way in which, indeed, the Holy Spirit can use him, even for a divine purpose, regardless of the spiritual state, the person. Uh, you can look at that. Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, or Belshazzar. So we don't know exactly, but, I mean, possibly it's, it's, it's a working for a greater purpose. In Isaiah 44, verse 28, God describes even him he's a pagan king as my shepherd he shall fulfill all my purposes he is here merely prompted by god to seek the welfare of jerusalem and so he makes this edict of this proclamation and that ends our book and our journey through the major prophet throughout the kingdom he acknowledges god gave him dominion over all kingdoms and he says god commanded me to build a house in jerusalem and so now cyrus sends out his call to all the jews in the entire kingdom of persia and he even sends a blessing he says may the lord his god be with him let him go up because this is an open challenge give it right away to all the readers remember these readers of chronicles are at the end of exiles they are re reca- doing a recap of their history that has been shattered by exile and now they, they hear this prophecy and it connects perfectly to what we'll see after the holidays, Lord willing, as we move to Ezra. These are in fact the very first word of Ezra chapter 1. That ultimately there is a restoration after judgment. That even after the destruction of a hopeful, a hopeful note, a hopeful, we could call it, post scriptum, P.S. to the book, it's added. Then another kingdom brings a new beginning. The temple will be one day Rebuilt. if that was as I said all you close the book of Chronicles and you are quite in despair right hopelessness however I wanna again emphasize that it is good for us to ponder the lasting judgment and even the despair that comes by stubborn sin in the in the face of God it is better to be at the house of mourning friends than at the house of feasting because there's a lot to learn indeed Jerusalem had to be destroyed Judgment had to be ultimate, yet the book doesn't end on the bleak note of judgment. The prison clothes will be shaken off. God's people are also called to look beyond punishment out to the future revival, future renewal. It looked like now God was completely done with His people. It looked like this was it. The city, the temple was gone. However, God's promises still stood. In the same way, even in the brink of the ultimate judgment, of hell, just prior to going there, there's still a final call, there's still a final hope. And the hope is of salvation. That for those who turn away from their sin and trusting in Christ, that call goes out. That if you turn from your sin now, you will not spend eternity in judgment, far worse than the judgment of Israel, by trusting in Christ. And this, friends, is not just repenting as individuals. I do think there is a corporate dimension of repentance and it doesn't imply false hopes i mean there's no life free of suffering there are consequences of judgment of our own choices bad choices but like the the prophets here we can declare this truth even in the face of persecution so what we get from this story friends is a strong warning for the church god it's here calling us few I want to say few among churches and pastors are those who go to this texts, warn of this coming judgment with the same eagerness and reality. The majority of people simply try to do away with those unpleasant truth in God's word. When God, through the prophet Jeremiah, as we saw weeks ago, came to warn them to submit to the, to the yoke of Babylon, people didn't want to listen to the real prophets. So they started to make false prophets. To make the king confide in false hope of a deliverance through more and more political alliances only to place a worse yoke of iron by the stubborn rebellion that even if you know it was possible then they can be excluded from all the suffering and exclusion and, and marginalization and all sort of things that come with God's judgment of exile so we're still called friends to witness in this world with a hope that it's not set on this world, but it's the ultimate restoration, you see. When Christ comes back, He will make all the wrongs right. He will make everything just. And notice God can use whatever means it takes to accomplish this restoration, even stir up the heart of a pagan king to accomplish his purpose. King Cyrus, if none of the religious leaders will take it to heart, God will get it done. So tonight's sermon, I want to be honest with, with you, in tune with our season as a church, given recent event, is more of a funeral sermon. That we mourn here for the destruction of Jerusalem. Friends, this is how it looks like for a nation to be abandoned by God. First, God hardens their hearts. Then they reject God's word as the result of their hardening. Then God gives wicked kings to rule over them. Then religion is corrupted, as we saw that down spiral until finally God sends the full blast. And we don't even know the beginning of what it looks like to be at that last stage. Uh, when I went to the Washington, D.C., there's a Holocaust museum. And I think one of the good things about that museum is the way in which they lead you from step one through every step of degeneration for the Jewish people in Germany just before um, the... Uh, the destruction that came when they went to the concentration camp. And it was a gradual, step-by-step, little-by-little, taking one freedom here, taking one freedom there. And you can wonder, how can a good God allow all this to happen? Friends, when a nation until then has lived in sin and rebellion against God and His law, in stubborn and unrecoverable backsliding, I want to say, even if many religiously pretend to keep worshiping the one and true God, We must not be surprised if the consequence of this is judgment that springs out every way without recovery. It is not whether, why God allowed bad things to happen. You're asking the wrong question. The question is ponder the consequence of personal responsibility first for our unrepented sin. Our nation, I want to say, is on the brink of a similar judgment unless we repent. Yes, sin is so serious, friends, that it will destroy us if we don't stop that down spiral. All that is left after this judgment is only to weep at the tragedy. I mean, no one, not God, not the prophet, rejoices over the inflicting of such judgments. Yet they remain just. There's a song that I like about by Andrew Peterson, a Christian artist. And it's actually a Christmas album. But it reflects this sentiment of what it must have felt after the fall of Jerusalem. It says this, Our sins, they are more numerous than all the lambs we slay. Our shackles, they were made with our own hands. Our toil is our atonement, our freedom yours to give. So Yahweh, break this silence if you can. Deliver us, deliver us, O Yahweh. Hear our cry and gather us beneath your wings tonight. And those last words will then start the prayers of Ruabal that we'll see next time. Friends, what we thought impossible happened. The city of God was destroyed. The temple is in flame. All the people were exiled, leaving behind just rubbles. And Jesus, when he came, warned the disciples that due to the same unfaithfulness of their generation, not one stone shall be left standing upon another. What comes next is one of the saddest pictures of desolations, friend. Exile. And I quote here the words of Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. For there those who carried us away captive asked us a song. And those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Jerusalem is in ruin. Israel goes in a foreign land never to return. This, friends, is the finishing line of an apostate nation. Yet it is in the midst of all those tears, in the midst of all those sorrows, in that dust and affliction that finally a stubborn people brought to their knees. Finally, they truly humble themselves. They truly turn away from pride. They truly turn away and repent. And they turn back to God. That's what it takes. The death of a nation. Kingdoms rise and fall. If you don't believe it, if you think of God has some sort of unconditional covenant with our nation, that regardless of our our behavior, and go and ask all the civilization that once were great and powerful, and now because of their sin and rebellion toward the living God, they're they're gone. They're in ruin. They're just a bunch of rubble. And may this be a lesson for us before God has to leave us in ruins. May this be a lesson friends of what happens when a nation is abandoned by God. Let us pray.